Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. God, we thank you very much for the opportunity we have to study your word. We're grateful for it and the way it speaks to us today, living and active and sharp. And I pray that it would do even that work at the 30,000 foot level as we get a picture of what's going on in these books. Let us have a mastery of the details down to the verses because we took time in this study this semester to get the big picture and the purpose and the direction and the themes behind each of these books. And God, we are grateful as we get back into the word to be able to have that perspective on you and your word that's eternal and stands forever. And we're grateful for it, God. So give us a good night of biblical education as we gather in this place in Jesus name. Amen. All right. We have lots to cover here. You remember these books right here that we dealt with. At least I think we got this far, did we not? First Corinthians last week. And we will, Lord willing, get through Second Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. Do you want to take any bets on whether or not that'll happen? It may or may not happen. We've got the pastoral epistles down there. Early letters of Paul, major letters of Paul, prison epistles. We'll deal with those tonight as we finish up the major epistles, if we can, of Paul. Pastoral epistles, as I said, James preceded those, at least in my work in thinking through these dates. Hebrews comes after uh, 64, so we're looking at about AD 65. First Peter, Second Peter, Jude, First John, Second John, Third John, and Revelation. From James to Third John on our chart, those are general epistles and revelation is apocalyptic prophecy more on that if we finish our series that would be good don't be confused but our first point is second corinthians point number one second corinthians let's just deal with the data as we try to fill this in very quickly here 13 chapters 256 verses 4477 words in the greek new testament which is the original language of the new testament 13 256 4477 the author, of course, is stated very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So, of course, we have Paul the apostle. We know him. We've met him. We understand something about him. And Timothy as well, we've already become acquainted with, and he is listed as an associate. Paul's spiritual child, traveling companion, official representative to the church, the pastor of Ephesus eventually, a native of Lystra. Jewish mother, knew the scriptures, Christian grandmother as well. So you know Timothy, and he stated here as an associate, an open associate of the Apostle Paul at the opening of this book. The date, to understand that, and I guess I could have put where these were all written as a separate point, but they always tie together and it'll always be covered under the date. But this is written from Macedonia, modern day Greece, and Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 is a good passage to keep in mind when we talk about geography and the origins of this book. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. And from Macedonia, he writes this book at about 55 AD as we piece together the travels of the apostle Paul. All right. The recipients of this book are the Corinthian and Christians that exist throughout Achaia. That's how the book starts, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Achaia, a subset there of the region 
So we've got the Corinthians, that should be plural, and Christians throughout Achaia. The Christian Corinthians and those that are in the surrounding region. The purpose of the book is to respond to a more a report of more difficulties. A lot of it has to deal with Paul trying to clarify who he is to the Corinthians. This is his most defensive book in an exemplary sense, not a sinful sense. I think obviously he presents himself as an apostle here with dignity and grace and yet has to respond to his critics in this book. Uh, there are quote-unquote false apostles, which he sarcastically calls super apostles that are misleading the Corinthians. They didn't like the way that the apostle Paul was living his life. He didn't seem to have all the power and the prestige and the eloquence even. And you don't think of Paul that way. You probably picture him as a very eloquent and powerful preacher, but that's not how he is understood in this book. We get a sense and some hints that he wasn't a a powerful speaker. He admits that. He could be self-effacing, but to a certain extent, we believe it because of the Corinthians' response when you had more eloquent preachers come in and discount the Apostle Paul. So there's misleading leaders in the church. Paul, of course, had planted the church, and now he's going to have to appeal to them to listen to him And that's an awkward position to be in as you have to defend yourself. And that's what the Apostle Paul has to do here. Very, very simple outline of the book. Paul gives a lot of personal plans and updates in part to discuss why he didn't carry through with his plans. Part of them given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. These are not the only two books, and I think I will address this if I didn't address it in the first book. And that is that uh, Paul has written Corinth, and he's even had a visit between 1 and 2 Corinthians to Corinth. Nevertheless, he's going to explain a little bit of his travel plans and his change in plans from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That's the famous passage when he says, you know, it's not yes and no, all the promises in Christ are yes, but in terms of our human perspective, sometimes we make plans and they don't happen. Uh, And that certainly is a profound and obvious truth. Chapter 2, he's dealing with uh, the discipline situation that many people tie to the direction given to the church in 1 Corinthians about the man who has his father's wife, the incestuous situation. Uh, That may or may not be the case. Nevertheless, he's responding to the fact that they have disciplined this person and they've responded well to that. He then describes his own ministry in great detail in chapters 3 through 7 and sets himself up for a defense that he's going to give later in the book. But some of the best passages, if you start getting involved in increasing ministry, that is a great section, chapters 3 through 7, just to see what biblical and Christian ministry is all about. It's not a pastoral epistle, but it's such a great autobiographical section of the Apostle Paul talking about what it is to serve God in an influential way in the church. He then gives uh, some very practical instructions regarding giving. It's, uh, as I often say, Corinth is the Orange County of the ancient world, and they had a lot of money, and yet they were not setting aside funds for the gift that Paul was going to bring to Jerusalem, and he chides them in a very loving way for that, but challenges them to give, and there's a lot of great giving instructions, which as I've said before recently with Compass 2020, this is a special giving project. This is not the regular giving that should be going on in supporting those that teach them, and that obviously is an obligatory command in Scripture, but much of what he's dealing with in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians are dealing with the special giving project, and uh, he really calls them to express their love through their financial gifts. And then the proper and uh, very pointed response to his critics in chapters 10 through 13, his response to his critics. And he gets very, very strong in his defense, sometimes stepping back and even having to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking crazy talk right now, but you need to hear this. And they think they're great. I mean, I, compare my resume in terms of what I put up with, which was part of the real 
value distinction between Paul who is suffering and being persecuted and poor and traveling from place to place without accommodations and luxury and the super apostles as he calls them sarcastically coming in and they're you know riding the best camels and living in great homes and they're very well to do and and powerful and eloquent and all the rest and he's trying to show that the way that he is living and what he is doing is really more reflexive of of what Christ uh, was all about and what Christianity ultimately should lead us all to do, and that is give up whatever we have to give up to do good and effective ministry. So he responds to his critics in great detail there. My favorite things about the book, I love the fact that there's comfort in Paul's left turns, and I mentioned this in the outline, Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, the affliction that we experienced in Asia. Now, not only did his plans change, but when he was describing what had happened to him, he speaks in such kind of transparent terms about his situation. He wants them to know that he has struggle. This is not a guy that just wants to, you know, be the suffering leader or the the wounded leader, but he's trying to say, listen, this has been something that has affected me in a way that has allowed us to see God answer our prayers together. He says, we're so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. If you want to track in scripture, how many people that are godly people that actually come to that place in scripture, there's a lot of folks, whether it's Job or uh, Moses or Elijah, we've got plenty of people, including the apostles. Paul, who says there was a point where I reached that I didn't even want to live anymore. Uh, That's very transparent. And I love the fact that in that great pain, here's what we have. He doesn't go out and sit on a rock and just kind of hope that God uh, blows some fresh wind of comfort into his face, although that can happen. He said, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, but come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. But I wasn't vacillating. He asks a rhetorical question when I wanted to do this. Uh, He makes it very clear that this left turn in his own life was one that was not well-intentioned. And we don't make promises without saying, as we should, the asterisk of if the Lord wills. But in this particular situation, he's making it very clear that there was a left turn in his life. And I think also what I wanted, and I don't see this here, maybe I'm going to get to it. No, I'm not. uh, Is when Timothy, that's what I had in mind, when he says that, not Timothy, Titus, that Titus was the one that brought God's comfort. God comforts the afflicted or the depressed in this case. You can translate the word that way. He was downcast with the coming of Titus. Uh, And that's what I was setting up for in that sentence before. And that is that God ministers to people even in their greatest sorrow through individuals. That's at least the common thread in scripture. Uh, Woe to him who falls when there's no one to lift him up. Uh, And yet so many Christians want to isolate themselves in suffering or grief or trials. And Paul shows just the opposite. Comfort in Paul's left turns. He has a lot of pain and he's comforted by the fact that God is not only guiding him, but using people like Titus to sit there and be with him. Uh, through his trials. Sorry about that. Number two, Paul's sarcasm. It is interesting to see that rhetorical use of sarcasm. Here's just one example. There's several in Second Corinthians. He says, for you gladly bear with fools being wise yourself. I mean, if you understand the context of that, that itself is, you know, a statement. He's he's saying you're not being wise, you're being fools, and the people that you're exalting as these great people uh, are fools. For for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs and strikes you in in the face. To my shame, I must say, that we were too weak for that. There is so much 
dripping sarcasm in Second Corinthians that reminds us that there is a big latitude, I think, within appropriate biblical, whether it's speech or letters or preaching, to engage whatever it takes within, obviously, proprieties, boundaries, to communicate clearly and strongly the will of God for other people's lives. I just love that. Whether it's humor, certainly Christ used humor. He used exaggeration. Paul uses here sarcasm. And uh, that's why you shouldn't be quite so sensitive. And I know our churches, and I have a great congregation that I get to preach to here every week. But when I go on the road, sometimes they're not as accommodating as you all are. But I think humor and sarcasm, whatever it might be, we should recognize God uses those all through the personalities of preachers and teachers. And that is something we should receive gladly. And it certainly can take the edge off of some very hard truths. Challenge to give, of course, I like that. Just like you in the Christian life, I find it's one thing that is so tangible in my sanctification. It's very hard uh, for us to give because we have their potential to get stuff that I want, things that'll make me feel good, things that'll make me feel secure, and I give those things away. That's very hard. But I like the fact that uh, that's one very tangible, concrete, black and white area of our sanctification. Just like a guy who wants to follow Christ and Jesus looks at him and said, fine, rich guy, sell everything you have. I mean, that's a yes or no proposition. And I think those are the kinds of things in our sanctification that we ought to, we ought to embrace. I mean, and not that God wants us in every situation to give to everything that comes our way. Clearly not, as we said, as we looked in some principles earlier in uh, 1 Thessalonians. But the idea of us being at least ready to see the muscles of our, our faith being exercised in some very tangible but difficult ways. And when we do give, as the Bible says here, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And that's how you ought to view giving. I was talking to a staff member today about the call in scripture for the thief to stop stealing and instead to labor hard uh, in honest work with their own hands so that they might be ready and able financially in that case to share with other people. The idea of that concept, the concept of giving is about of doing good and doing good works in other people's lives. And in the case here for their gift that they were going to give, the idea of being ready to give to other people and be prepared for every good work. And it's not that, hey, I want to give so I can have more money so that I can give. I've heard that argument, and that may not be the case. I may give everything to the place where I don't have any more to give financially, but God will certainly supply all sufficiency in my life to do more good, because that's the whole point. Uh, with any kind of good work. Second Corinthians 8 9, for you know, he says, says rather, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich, which is a mouthful and a bit of a tongue twister. But the idea here clearly of seeing our giving is an act of reflecting the virtue of Christ and setting aside his glory, as Philippians 2 says, to come and redeem us. And every time you give and you give in a way that makes you feel insecure or if it makes you feel like you've sacrificed and you may not have the stuff that you want because you've given up something for something else, that's the kind of thing that should drive us back to the parallel that we find in Christ. I mean, you're near to Christ at least by example and model when we are uh, giving to the place where it costs us. That's why even in Compass 2020, we talk about giving. It's a good exercise of our faith to be able to say we don't want equal gifts, obviously, because we all have unequal capacities, but we certainly want equal sacrifice because if we can all muscle our, our giving to a place, whatever it might be, that we all feel that at least that to that place of you know, the, the border of comfort and stepping over that a little bit, as he says to them, they gave beyond what they were even able, which is stepping way beyond their comfort zone. But if we can get to that place, I think we can recognize a great spiritual connection to the fact that Christ did the same in even the state of the incarnation and coming to, to redeem us. 
some great insights into unanswered prayer in 2 Corinthians. I probably quote this more than any other passage in 2 Corinthians in counseling. We certainly answer it all the time on the radio when people call in and ask why God didn't heal them. And I recognize that God has made very clear that a lot of our prayers, not just our prayers for relief from pain, but prayers for a lot of other things that he doesn't answer. He says in this passage, Paul, with a very obvious request, I'm sick. I want to serve the Lord. I don't think I can serve the Lord as well when I'm sick. And, and he, he pleads with God three times that this uh, thorn in the flesh should leave. It doesn't happen. But God responds and says, my grace is sufficient for you for power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, we need to see this on a whole nother level. When God doesn't answer your prayers and clearly he won't answer all of your prayers, you need to be able to do, as we'll see in some other books tonight, that God is working out his good plan, as Romans 8 says, as trite as it sounds in the difficulties of our lives. He is trying to get us to a place of more usefulness. And a lot of times, it's our sickness that he doesn't take away, or it's our poverty that he doesn't reverse, or it's our unemployment that he doesn't fix right away, or it's some kind of dependency on some person, or whatever it might be, some pain that he doesn't relieve that is about him making us more useful. As others have said, and I don't know, it's been attributed to a lot of people, Spurgeon among others, but God rarely uses anyone greatly till he's hurt them deeply. And I don't know if you recognize that or not, but if you know someone that's been effective in your Christian life, whether it's a disciple or a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or whatever it might be, I can pretty well guess they've had a... uh, a series of things in their life that has brought great pain to them, which is always involved in answered prayer. So it's a great passage to go to. It should be something that's quick to recall when you're dealing with folks that are hurting because their prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Now, it's not the first thing I check. I always want to check to see if there's unconfessed sin. I want to see if there's discipline in life uh, in this area related to some other disobedience in another area. But when there's nothing that I can come up with and I've asked God to reveal what my sin is, if I recognize that God is just not answering my prayer because he's got some other reason for it. I've got to be able to step back and see uh, God is making me more useful in some way. That's not just wishful thinking. I think that's a general, consistent pattern in the people that have been used greatly by God. Romans, the book of Romans, status and data on the length. It's 16 chapters long. It's 433 verses. That's quite a bit. That's 7,111 words in the Greek New Testament. It's a rather lengthy book. That's why it's categorized, although it's somewhat arbitrary to call it this, one of the major epistles of the Apostle Paul. And if there's ever a major epistle of the Apostle Paul in terms of content, this is probably the most weighty content uh, that's not just responding to specific problems or provincial issues, but here is the gospel, as we'll see. Uh, The author, obviously, and anyone can dispute any of these books, but no one with any objectivity is going to deny that the Apostle Paul wrote this. Paul, servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It's stated Paul the Apostle, and that is all I will say about the authorship. We'll have to go to a Romans class to go further than that, which we will have at CBI one day. The date, written from Corinth on Paul's third missionary journey, which gives us that window of time, which we've dealt with before, but let's peg this at about 56, AD 56. Paul spent about three months in Corinth on his third missionary journey, and about the end of that journey, we believe that he wrote this book. We could also explain some of that, but let's just jot it down for data's sake. He writes this book to the Christians in Rome. Obviously, I don't need to tell you this. Everyone should know. Intuitively, Rome is the most influential city of the first century. It had been for quite some time, and it would be for quite some time after the New Testament was written. Uh, It was uh, huge in ancient standards. About 4 million people uh, lived there. If you think about Orange County being 3.3 or 3.1, just about 3 million people, uh, you can imagine in that geographic location. That is a big, gigantic 
mass population. There's not a more significant city in the ancient world than the imperial city of Rome. At the time that Paul writes this letter, Nero is the emperor. Nero is ruling from 54 to 68. He's not mentioned by name in the New Testament, but it was it's like saying when you say the emperor or Peter says honor the king, there's no need to say it. Just like we wouldn't have to clarify the president, even though our presidents come and go in four to eight years. This was obviously who was in charge. Paul didn't have to name him. Paul had to appear before him on at least two different occasions, it seems. Second Timothy chapter 4 and Acts chapter 25 give us a sense of that. And ultimately, it was in Rome under Nero that both Peter and Paul suffered martyrdom. At least we assume that, not with the inerrant authority of Scripture, but by early church history. The city had large population problems, as you might have in a large city like that, you can imagine. We've got our own problems, and we've got a lot of technological advances that make things a little bit more manageable. They had a lot of economic disparity in the city of Rome. Uh, You had the wealthy, which of course was the minority. They were very wealthy. The wage gap was huge, if you want to put it in those modern terms. Uh, There was a lot of poverty, a lot of neglect of people, a lot of vices, a lot of corruption. You wanted any kind of sin in Rome, at least as you could get in the ancient world, you could find it there. It's a big, big place with all the typical characteristics of a big city inhabited by sinful fallen people. How many of you have been to Rome before? been to Rome? Some of you have been to Rome with me, I remember. Yeah, I've been there a few times and to see some of the great archaeological structures there, at least the reassembled structures are great and they obviously span uh, a number of centuries. Uh, The city-state on the Italian peninsula was uh, quite remarkable, still is, and there's so many things that we can visit today in the tours as you go to Rome uh, that will take you right back to the time of the Apostle Paul. Uh, It had been founded since the 8th century on the Tiber River, as you know, built on seven hills, eventually expanded to seven hills. Super important Christian community there, and Paul writes them, as we'll see in chapter 16. He has a long list of people. I think I I wrote the number down on my notes. I have 47 people I think he mentions by name, and yet he'd never, he hadn't founded that church, as we'll see. We'll get more into that. But this everyone, all roads led to, to Rome, starting from Pentecost in Acts 2. People who were exposed to the gospel had made their way back to this big city. Church was not founded by the apostles, but by travelers and by migration. You can remember even Cornelius that we meet in Acts chapter 10. And we have, he's an Italian leader of an Italian cohort. The day of Pentecost, of course, people are traveling from all over the ancient world, including Rome, to get to Pentecost. You've got a Jewish enclave there. You've got this huge Roman colony. The gospel got there. All roads lead to to Rome. And by the time Paul writes this, he knows this is a significant city that he's got to get to and have uh, an influence on, as we'll see in a minute. So many converts of Paul, they come from elsewhere. Chapter 16 is full of all these names, and he has personal connection to several of them, but he didn't go there and found the church. Uh, Neither did Peter, uh, contrary to some people's suggestion. Majority of Gentile Christians, as we'll see, and yet there was a sizable Jewish background, a set of Jewish background Christians there. Many Jew and Gentile issues addressed in the book, both theologically in chapter 9 and 10, for instance, chapters 9 and 10, and practically in terms of things like dietary restrictions and Sabbath keeping and the the, the Passover and Yom Kippur and, and all the rest, Day of Atonement. All those things were issues in a church where you have Jewish background believers as that might be put today and Gentile Christians that had no upbringing in the details of the, of the Jewish law. So you see that throughout the book. 
purpose of the book, Paul's heart for Roman Christians is he starts out in chapter 1, verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Now, if you think too categorically about the word gift, you're going to think about 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14 and these lists that we have in the Bible. Don't think in those terms. Think in terms of wanting to give a gift to them. And his preaching and his leadership and his insight and his apostolic authority would be a, certainly a gift to them. And that gift was to strengthen them. He wants to give them a gift, not financially, and to try and distinguish that from a financial gift or any other kind of gift. He calls it a spiritual gift. I certainly wouldn't think in terms of what we think of when we think about the gift of teaching or the gift of administration, gift of, of, of giving or whatever it might be. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I want my faith and my understanding of Christ and the gospel to encourage you, and I want your testimony and your understanding of Christ to encourage me, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you. So there's the confession. He's never been to Rome, and yet he's going to write a whole chapter full of specific names and people that he knows there. But thus far, I've been prevented in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul wants to get to Rome. He says the rest of the Gentiles, which is the hint that this is mostly a Gentile church, and yet he's going to address Jews within the book. And so we recognize some of those things we've already stated. Paul's heart for the Roman Christians, he certainly wants to be there. It's like getting to the biggest city of any country. Paul's plans in Romans chapter 15, verses 23 through 25, as he reprises this, he says, I've longed for many years to come to you. I hope to see you in passing as I go on to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. I love even the assumption, as it's often the case in the ancient world, that you're going to support me in my travels. Once I've enjoyed your company for a while at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. And we see that weave throughout these letters that are about the same time as Paul talks about bringing aid to Christians, financial aid to the Christians in Jerusalem. That's a lot of traveling. If you really think about how hard it was to travel in the ancient world, but he's going to get there just so he can spend time teaching them and that they can encourage him. Of course, the purpose is to clearly explain the gospel, right? I mean, there's not a book that explains the gospel more clearly, at least in more detailed, specific statements regarding whether it's the problem of sin or what justification is and how forgiveness works and what the atonement's all about. It's a fantastic book, as you already know, to explain the gospel as clearly as possible. Then, of course, to address some practical issues. Uh, You've got this great, well, we're going to get to the outline. I don't want to give it to you ahead of time. Address a lot of practical issues. No major doctrinal concerns. Compare this to Corinth when there's all of these details about, you know, you've written this or you got this problem or this person has his father's wife. He doesn't have any of that bent on this book at all. He has concerns and he says that and he knows there's problems and he talks about the, co- the conflict in particular between the Jews and Gentiles in the church, but he's not, this is not at all looking like the letter to the Corinthians. He also, and I love this because he does this so boldly throughout the New Testament, he requests prayer. He says, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Pray for me. I don't know that we do that enough and wholeheartedly ask people, would you please pray for me? I don't know the last time you said those words to someone, but you should probably say it more than you do because we see that pattern in scripture. Um, Don't be just dealing with your own prayer list on your own. I appreciate that. I was telling my wife last night, I think it was. Yeah, last night we were talking and I said, you know, someone I hardly know comes out of the blue and says, would you pray for this? Now I'm the pastor. I guess that happens more to me perhaps than it does to you, but just to kind of a random pray, very specific prayer. And I love the fact it was very specific and I put it on my prayer list and I've been praying about that ever since. And I thought, well, it's just a biblical thing to ask for prayer. And that may invite you to be asking me to pray for your things. And that, okay, bring it on, I guess. But two can play at that game because I got things for you to pray for 
in my life. We need to be praying for one another. Specifically, he's concerned about his ministry going on without the opposition and adversarial pushback from his opponents, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. I just love all of those prayer requests. I don't want my life to be messed up by these unbelievers that want to stop the good that I'm doing. I want the things that I'm bringing to Jerusalem to be a great joy and satisfactory to them. I want it to meet their needs. Uh, I want to come to you and I want to be joyful in your presence. I want to be refreshed in your company. Uh, Just a lot of great things. And I know that I often recommend Carson's book. Uh, I think he's renamed it something like maybe the subtitle's always been there, Paul's Priority in Praying. But if you look at all of Paul's prayers, as Carson is good at very meticulously doing on any topic that he deals with. But uh, Don Carson, I think, uh, does what all of us should do at some level, and that is just track Paul's praying and his prayer requests and the things he asks for. And you can learn a lot about spiritual uh, maturity from the Apostle Paul's prayer life. It's very transparent, which is helpful. Let's get a very simplified outline here, the introduction in the first 17 verses, which is really doesn't do it justice. There's so many great things in the first 17 verses to set up what is dealt with throughout the book, but I'll just call it an intro for now because I already qualified this outline as a very simplified outline. We deal with sin in chapters 1, middle of chapter 1 through uh, chapter 3, verse 20, not quite the end of the chapter. Uh, then we deal with a the great theme of justification, chapters 321 through 521, which is the end of the chapter. Sanctification, which are some of the best chapters in Romans, uh, save the very confusing chapter in chapter 7, at least the second half of chapter 7, very difficult. Israel's great, great theme here, chapters 9 through 11. So many things there that need to be understood, not just in terms of the past and how Israel relates to the church, but in the future and what God is going to do. We'll look at that real quickly. Practical Christian living, chapters 12 through almost the end of 15. So many practical things there. I draw out a couple of those in my favorite things list in just a second. And then the conclusion of the book, that's a long, simplified outline, but some of you have studied Romans with me and you know that's still qualifies as a very simplified outline. Intro, sin, justification, sanctification, Israel. Look at that. You got six points with one word, seven if you count the eighth point. That's the simplest outline ever created on the book of Romans. And I should look. I don't know. That would be a good homework assignment. Has anyone simplified the book that much? Of course, everyone else is going to say it's oversimplified. Of course it is, but there it is. I'm marveling at my reductionistic view of Romans. All right, G, my favorite thing. Sin before salvation. This is transformative. I've told you, some of you, you've heard my testimony, and that's one thing, the testimony I came to Christ. But right after that, William Baker, my theology professor in Chicago, um, I credit him with changing so much of my thinking about the gospel just by having me look through the New Testament and make observations like this. And that was, you know, before Paul ever gets to talking about God loves you or there's forgiveness or grace, which is always the way I tried to evangelize in the early part of my life when I was a non-Christian and even the early part of my Christian life when I became a Christian, I, I, just to turn this around and say, well, wait a minute, when Paul's going to talk about salvation, he doesn't start with anything like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Because that doesn't make any sense theologically. He always starts with the problem of sin. And that's why people don't like our gospel, right? I mean, I've told you so many times when people say to me, go into that situation and share the gospel. I always look at them like, are you sure you even want me to do that? Do you know what the gospel is? Right? I'll say, oh, I'm going to get, would you, would you do my wedding ceremony? Sure. But make sure you preach the gospel. Are you, you really want me to preach the gospel at your wedding? 
call your mother-in-law a sinner in the middle of the service. I'm not sure that's what you want. I mean, there are times we don't share the gospel. I understand that. I want to share the gospel as much as I can. But we need to realize that we cannot share the gospel simply by saying God loves you. Or I can't share the gospel just by talking about how great it is that God sent his son to save us. Doesn't make any sense without sin. Paul spends all that time in the first part of the book saying every last one of us is a sinner. And if we don't catch that, you don't have the gospel. And I know we've truncated the gospel in the modern era. And Dr. Baker's assignment to me to go to the track rack of your church, pull out your tracks. And I wrote a paper on nothing but the gospel tracks. And I came up with one gospel. Then he said, okay, now use nothing but the New Testament. Make sure you spend a lot of time in Romans, but use nothing but the New Testament and write another term paper on the gospel. That, was, that changed my life in terms of how I understood and, and preached the gospel and presented the gospel from that point on. I love the triad, the, 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 the trio, I guess I should say, of conscience, creation, and scripture. That has forever changed my evangelism as well. Just to understand what's going on in chapter 1, second half of chapter 1, and the beginning of chapter 2, to see that these three things all speak to the same issue. I illustrated that in that book some of you may have read that I wrote last year on the 10 things. My first chapter on Do All Roads Lead to Heaven? I gave that illustration of the ship, which of course I tried to hone that in the preaching from this platform, but that concept of the sinking ship, and I talk about all the things that should make it very clear that you're sinking and you need to get to the lifeboat. And one of them is the listing of the ship I talked about in that illustration. And, and, and the idea that someone, when I tell them to get to the lifeboat because things aren't okay with you or this thing called life in the world, I, I need to realize that the, their inner ear is testifying to the thing that I'm saying. The conscience, right? The law of God is written on their hearts. I have an ally in evangelism. You can drop me into the middle of any situation to share the gospel, just like I can drop you into any situation to share the gospel, and you will feel like you're completely alone giving a completely foreign message. But you're not. You're not because of conscience and creation. And those two things speak so loudly in conjunction with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why I just think to think that gives me a new kind of of fortitude and boldness and courage and also just clarity about what I'm saying as I bring the scripture to bear on people's conscience and their understanding of what they see in creation. So anyway, just remember those three things are always working in the same direction. Now, your conscience can be seared, as the Bible says. It can be wounded. It can be worn down. It can be scarred over. I can understand you. someone's got a bad conscience, and someone can be really dull and dumb to the glory of God in nature. We don't hear the voice of God in that because we're so laden with lies from our culture about how we got here that are ridiculous. But all of those have to be, as it says in chapter one, suppressed in our unrighteousness. You have to willingly deny those things. And that's why if we can uncover those, it's a good thing philosophy of apologetics and all of that. Obviously, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, you know this, the book of Romans makes this crystal clear. Think of this now, Romans 3, 21 and 22, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest. Okay, first it says in chapter one, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's being made manifest. It's like a train that's left the station and it's coming to earth. God is going to destroy the world. He's going to judge people. He set a day by which he's going to judge the world by the man, Jesus Christ. He's appointed and made you know, uh, firm and reality and, and, and authenticated by his resurrection. All of that from Acts 17. The idea, though, is it's coming. He's also revealed something else, and that is his righteousness. The thing we don't have, after three chapters of talking about it, he says, is apart from anything you can do to keep the rules. Now, the righteousness of God, 
God has been manifested. Just like the, the wrath of God is, is being manifested and going to be. It's going to hit us one day at the, at, the, at the great white throne judgment. But you can avoid all that by this other thing that's going to reach out and save you. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's apart from the law. But if you read the law, you'll see in the law and the prophets, it's saying there's unrighteousness that's alien to you. That's not your righteousness. That righteousness of God is through faith. You can have it. And it's in Christ Jesus as you trust in him. For everyone, Jew and Gentile, if I trust in Christ, I grab this thing that becomes this great protector between me and God the judge. God is the judge, and he's also the one who justifies me by reaching out and absorbing the justice that I deserve. It's just such a great picture of what I need that's outside of me. As the reformers like to always say, it's an alien righteousness. It's not something I can produce in myself. And we're dealing with this with JWs and Mormons and just the average guy at the end of our street that wants to say he's going to heaven because he's a good guy. Our gospel is about an alien righteousness. It's about a righteousness that's outside of myself, actually provided by an alien if you want to define it that way. He didn't come in a spaceship, but he came in a manger in Bethlehem to give us the righteousness that we needed. He came from another world to make that possible. In imputation, you get that. That is a counting term. And the whole new perspective of Paul and all that tried to bring in academic circles about this and trying to redefine justification. And they don't like this language and they don't like the courtroom view and they don't like all this it's nonsense. When it comes down to it, you can't avoid these concepts that were so carefully uncovered in the Reformation. It's not that they didn't preach them before. It's just the church lost this view of how we get saved and to impute to credit to me. Just like if I were to go to the bank and there was something credited to my account that came from outside my account. That's why I am right before God is because of my alien or accredited righteousness to my account through Christ. Here's a good phrase I happen to like, aggressive sanctification. Aggressive. If you haven't been to aggressivesanctification.com, if you're fairly new to the church, you need to read those, I don't know, I wrote like 12 articles there, and then it should link at some point to all the sermons our pastors preach during that conference here at one of our equipped conferences. But uh, Romans chapter 6, for all the people that want to say great reformed view of salvation and imputation and all the rest leads me to some kind of laying back and letting God see Christ so I don't, you know, I got nothing to offer here, and that means I can cruise and put my feet up on the dashboard that has no place in the book of Romans. By the time we get to sanctification in Romans, in chapter 6, 7, and 8, you see things like this. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies. Don't let it happen that you would obey its lust. You've got to fight. Like Peter said, the flesh is going to war against the soul. J.C. Ryle's first chapter of holiness, I quote it all the time, 1901 it was written. What a great book. It's just a sermon that he preached in a series of sermons. He might have written parts of it, but the idea is he was preaching these great concepts of what it means to realize that when it comes to justification, there's an, a response to the gospel versus sanctification. We built the chart last week. I think it was last or two weeks ago, whatever it was, uh, to deal with the distinction there. And if you haven't read J.C. Ryle's Anything by J.C. Ryle is worth reading, but start with holiness if you haven't read anything by him or you listen to Audible or ChristianBooks.com. You can get it on, it's a great audio book. And I think you'll find that this hundred-year-old set of sermons that you will hear someone read to you as you work out at the gym or whatever, I hope it sounds a lot like your pastor if this is your church. Because uh, I, I read stuff out of the page and I think, man, that hundred-year-old sermon preaches so well right here in the 21st century. And though I feel like I was preaching like he was before I ever started to read Ryle, I certainly hear myself sounding a lot like J.C. Ryle, or I want to at least. Don't present the members of your body here, that your members implied of your body, the parts of your body, your hands, your eyes, 
your tongue, the things you say, as instruments for unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You're in a new person. You're in a new category. You've got to live like it and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. It's a very active thing, a very aggressive thing. You've got to get up every day and say, I'm not going to let sin reign in my mortal body. You've got to fight this. You don't fight. You relax. You're going to coast. I shouldn't say coast. You're going to drift. As it says in Hebrews 2, you're going to drift away from the things that you know are right. Christian life is about aggressive sanctification, not passive sanctification, which was all the rage about six years ago when we wrote those aggressive sanctification articles. Chapter 5, I could state this in other ways, talk about the sovereignty of God in salvation, but I think really it comes down to me recognizing I should be amazed that God would save any. If you just take that one phrase, be amazed that God would save any, you will solve most of the questions people ask you about the problems of predestination, any of the things that we deal with in terms of the sovereignty of God and salvation, or why isn't everyone saved, or if God loved everyone, why is there a hell? Just deal with that concept. It is an amazing thing that God would, would save anyone. I mean, you don't look at a, at a penitentiary when everyone you were to know, let's just say you could magically, that everyone is completely guilty. They're all pedophiles. They're all criminals. They're all rapists. They're all terrible people. And you say, wow, why are all these people living in palaces and blessed by the judicial system? Well, you would never ask that question. You would be surprised if any of them got that kind of treatment. And that's the point throughout the book of Romans, particularly this section that is hard for people to handle. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 and 15 says, what should we say then after all the things that have been said about God's gracious choice to save people? Is there injustice on God's part? Not if you understand justice, there's not. By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. I mean, that's the way you treated your marital decisions. Am I right? Right? If some gal down the street says, why didn't you marry me? Well, I can marry who I want to marry. I can set my love on whoever I want to set my love on. This is my decision. And yet we don't want God to be afforded the same kind of right. So much there, so many great quotes from Jeremiah and other places in the Old Testament as he works through this passage and says, we've got a great God who decides to have compassion on mercy to the people he wants to have them on. Is it fair? It's not the point. As I preach through that, if you haven't heard my sermons on Romans 9, it might be helpful. God's work in evangelism is what I call it. That concept of God being a God that chooses to lovingly set his mercy on people is the marvelous thing if we understand our sin and we understand his grace. That's going to lead us to that conclusion. You can still shake your fist at God and say, well, I think every criminal should live in a mansion and have people waiting on them and should have, you know, sports cars and all that, to use my lame illustration. Uh, You can say that all you want, but you're missing the point. You're living among criminals talking about why you don't have a better life. The future of Israel. I mean, this is a very, unless you tap dance your way around this, and I was talking to some people recently who don't share my view of the future of Israel, and they played with this passage, and it was really hard for them, and they admitted it was hard for them. And I'm not saying that there's not an eschatological view that doesn't have hard issues, but when you look at this passage, it's very clear that God is not done with Israel yet as the nation of Israel, the ethnic descendants of Abraham. And he says here, just to hit one of the punchlines, lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. What is the mystery? Here it is, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Context is not spiritual Israel. If you want to use that phrase, like the song you sang as a kid, Father Abraham had many sons. Father, you know, many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord. One of the dumbest songs ever written and (laughs) theologically odd. But the idea is that we're not talking about people that just have some connection like the book of Romans might say as that we share in the faith and blessing of Abraham. That's true. We're talking about the children of Abraham, the people that are descended, uh, ethnically descended from Abraham. 
and the point is they've had a partial hardening upon them until the fullness of the Gentiles, there's the clear contrast between Israelis and Gentiles, has come in. So there's going to be a fullness of the Gentiles. We're going to have the last Gentiles saved. And in this way, when this all takes place, all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. And now he starts quoting Isaiah 59. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. There's going to be a time when the people of Israel, Jacob, nickname, he's going to banish all ungodliness. That's never happened. And it's going to happen to ethnic Israel at some point in one day when all the Gentiles and the fullness of what God has planned to show mercy upon come in. I mean, this is helpful. I'm not saying there's any one passage that's the key to unlocking all your eschatology, but you got to deal with this and you got to deal with this fairly. And if so, I think you may come to the conclusion if you take the Old Testament promises seriously that not only does God have a future for Israel, but there's some things about Israel's preparation like the 70th week of Daniel or the time of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation that's never happened since the time the world began or will ever happen again since it ends. I think that's all yet to come. And I think it starts to make you something close to a pre-mill, pre-trib Christian. More of my favorite things in the book of Romans, clarity regarding civil government. I don't like many things about civil government, but I recognize civil government is God's servant for good. If you do wrong, be afraid. It doesn't bear the sword in vain, which I often jokingly say is not to paddle you. If you do wrong, it's to kill you. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Now, if we did it with perfect justice, all of us would be dead. But we do it with a kind of modified sense that there are some stinky skunks among the skunks that are so stinky they need to be dealt dealt with. And my point is there are certain egregious moral behaviors, like the taking of someone's life with malice aforethought, as the Bible puts it in the Old Testament, in the Old King James at least, which has found its way into our legal code today. The idea is that there are certain things that demand the government to take the sword and to kill its own citizens in an execution. It's not murder, it's execution, and it is the wrath of God on wrongdoers, which is one of maybe not the only capital offense that should be punished. But the point is, civil government is to be respected as a servant of God. My other favorite thing is Paul's concern for individuals. I said 47, it was 37. I didn't memorize that number. I did preach through this once in a three-part series, believe it or not. One of the hardest challenges of preaching through Roma. I thought Romans 9 was hard to preach through, but to preach through Romans 16 was equally difficult uh, for a whole other reason. What do you do with 37 names listed and six groups that were listed within that? Uh, you've got to try to figure out what's going on, not only to understand it historically, but to think about how in the world that has any implication of my daughter or my son or my church or my family or my life. Um, and that was a challenge, and hopefully that was a helpful series. Phoebe is listed there at the beginning of the list, the female deacon of the church, Priscilla, Aquila, all kinds of people in that list. You might want to listen to that series. It's rather old now, I guess, but see how to preach a tough text. Let's talk about Ephesians real quick. Here's the data on that. Six chapters long, as you know, 155 verses, 2,422 words in the Greek New Testament. Of course, there are always more than that in English, but there's your data. 6, 155 and 2422 for the chart that you're building. The author clearly stated it is the Apostle Paul, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, dot, dot, dot. Not anymore I want to say about that because I got a lot, a lot to say about this. The date. It's written from Rome. While Paul was under house arrest in Acts chapter 28, uh, Paul was a Roman citizen, as he said in Acts 21. He appeals to Caesar. He makes his way to Rome from Caesarea across the Mediterranean, had the shipwreck and all of that. But we call this the first Roman imprisonment of the Apostle Paul. It took place between 60 and 62 AD 60 to 62. And out of that period of time, he wrote four prison epistles, we call them. And this is the first of the four prison epistles. And we'll put this at 61 AD 61. The recipients of this book 
Who do you think the recipients of the book of Ephesians is? You think it's the Ephesians, right? Here's the problem. The early Spanish scripts don't include the phrase to the saints who are, quote, in Ephesus. There's no logical reason that that would be missing. There's actually an ellipsis there. I mean, they don't literally put dots there, but there's a gap. Matter of fact, in even in English, you can see you don't have a full sentence to have the words to the saints who are and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Who are what? Who are two words? You need something in somewhere. The earliest manuscripts don't have that. They're absent. If that was all we had, that would be a lot, depending on which manuscripts they are. And they're very weighty, early, reliable manuscripts that, for a lot of reasons, we would put a lot of stock in. But the early church fathers confirm that there's no referent. There's no city listed there. It's like it's purposely gone. You don't, it's not like, as some translations later try to smooth it over, some translations will read, and I mean this in the early transmission of the text, to the, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, that's not what the text reads. It reads, to the saints who are and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So we know this had some kind of directed geographical object, but it's, it's absent. Well, it's named Ephesians in later manuscripts. No, you're right, it is. But even that, you start to think, if this is really to Ephesus, where is all Paul's personal discussion about the people in Ephesus? He'd never been to Rome, and he put 37 names at the end of the book. He didn't give a single name here that he greets in this city that he spent three, probably three and a half years in. That's the longest period of time he spent in any city on his missionary journeys. And he doesn't mention anybody. Not to mention, there's no specific church situations that are described. It's not like Corinth, where you got this problem, you got this issue, you got this person. Or even Philippians, Eodia and Syntyche are fighting. You guys need to put, fix this, get it right. None of that in Ephesians. It is the most generic letter that we have from the Apostle Paul. Therefore, many people will conclude this was intended to be a circular letter. This was something that Paul wrote and wrote it on purpose as a generic letter to be sent all around Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that people would read it and respond to it. It makes a lot of sense. Papyrus 46, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, some other weighty manuscripts of early date don't include this. Why did it pick up the name Ephesus? Well, Ephesus was certainly one of the most prominent cities. It was the place that Paul had spent the longest at. It was a place that Timothy would end up pastoring. It was a significant city, and it makes sense that you would, if you're going to append a city to it and fill one in, you'd fill that in. It makes sense. But there are other clues that make us think maybe the book of Ephesians or the epistle to the Ephesians is really the epistle to any church, USA in our case. Consider this at the end of the book. Compare Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21 to Colossians 4. Here's what Ephesians 6, 21 and 22 says. So that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. So Tychicus is the courier of this letter. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. That's how he ends this book or comes in for a landing in, in Ephesians 6. Look what he says in Colossians 4. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Same, same idea. So Colossians and Ephesians, both carried by Tychicus, having similar but not identical things said, 
in these two books, different, developing different ideas, Colossians specific, dealing with problems, dealing with heresies that were cropping up. Ephesians didn't have any of that. Then at the end of Colossians, we have this, Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. When this letter, the letter to Colossae, the letter that has specifics in it, the letter that is dated and there's no dispute about the beginning saying to the Colossians, has been read among you in Colossae, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So you have these similar statements about Tychicus coming with a letter to two different places and then talking about, I want to report, want you to know how I'm doing and I want to know how you're doing. I'd like you to be encouraged and then swap these letters. Well, some people think maybe that Ephesians was originally to Laodicea. Some believe it was to Laodicea in the 60s and by the 90s, when Jesus writes a postcard to Laodicea, he rips them, does he not? And says, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And some people, with no evidence, uh, in terms of manuscript evidence, not one that I can think of, and I'd have to go back and dig to see if there's any manuscript that ever says this, they think, well, maybe it was originally to Laodicea, but they were like, we're not, going to not, we're not going to call it that. I don't think that's what happened, but that's one of the theories about why we don't have a name there. So I asked you a question that you thought was easy. Who does Ephesians go to? And it's a little more difficult than you might think. Could it have been the letter to the Laodiceans and those who are faithful in Christ Jesus? Perhaps. Who knows? Either way, I think Ephesians was certainly circling through Laodicea and was supposed to come to the Colossians. And they do have several things in it that are different and they develop different things, although they track with some similar theme. Well, here's our map just to give us a little sense of all this. And I guess I should have zoomed in a little closer on it. But there is Ephesus. We'll just say we have no doubt that Ephesus was one of the cities that would want to be see this letter read in. No doubt about that. Laodicea, you can see, is to the right of the box there. Matter of fact, it's covering the L and the A right next to it there. Here's some pictures of Ephesus. Some of you went to Ephesus with me, actually, the day I went. And I don't know if Pastor Pete's been back with other groups but since then, but the day I went, it was raining. If you were with me, smile at me if you remember the rain in, in Ephesus as we walked down this main drag here, the ancient street where the shops and homes of the rich used to be, the galleries and the great Ephesian library that was here. It's a great place to visit, and these ruins are, I mean, they're, they're dramatic and a great picture to take. A good selfie moment in front of the library of Ephesus. purpose of the letter is to encourage sound doctrine and Christian practice. And again, I can't say much more than that because it's such a generic letter. I mean, that really is what I can say. It's about sound doctrine and it's about Christian practice. Simplified outline, let's make it as simple as we can. Sound doctrine, first three chapters, Christian practice, second three chapters. You thought I oversimplified the book of Romans, there's an outline that should be laughed out of any Bible school in the country. But there it is, sound doctrine and Christian practice, to make it as simple as we can, split in half. As I said to you last time, and I think I used Ephesians as an example, doesn't mean that you should teach for 10 months in Ephesians 1 through 3 and never talk about application, never get to Christian practice, because if you're going to read this letter, say, for instance, in the church of Colossae, because maybe it came through Laodicea, you're going to stand up and read it in the church, and you're going to be dealing with application and doctrine all within a matter of minutes. So never preach without application. My favorite things in the book, of course, God's sovereign plans couldn't be more firmly put in Ephesians chapter 1, that in him we Christians have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Some people say, do you believe in predestination? Have you ever been asked that question? Do you believe in predestination? Everyone believes in predestination. You just have to explain it. Just like everyone believes in the rapture. That's another misnomer. People think, do you believe in the rapture? Everyone believes in the rapture because the Bible says we're going to be raptured. The question is when? Do you believe in predestination? Of course we believe in it. 
So that's not, a, that's not the right question. The question is, how do you explain predestination? And even that, I was talking to someone last week about this. People leave our church over predestination. When you hear someone's leaving the church over that topic, you, you have to stop them and say, can you please tell me what it is that Pastor Mike's preaching is doing because of his doctrinal positions that is in some way at odds with what you're doing? How does this work itself out? You don't like the way he explains predestination. Well, that's one thing. You're going to leave the church over that? What exactly is the connection to the bad practice? I mean, I know you're all about orthodoxy and orthopraxy, but I want to know what it is that I'm doing that is heretical, even if you don't like the way I explain predestination. Bring it on. I mean, let's talk about it. You think I don't believe in evangelism? You don't think I don't call people to repentance? You think I don't ask people to choose to follow Christ? Of course I do. All right, well, that bit of a, I had a little passion there in that statement. <laughs> I just get tired of that. They run away, right? Oh, I don't like this. Send them to me. I mean, I'm not going to beat them up. I just want to ask them some questions. That's all. Of course, the thing I like about Ephesians is the equation I lay out for you in Partners chapter 1. The gospel plus faith equals salvation plus good works. It couldn't be any clearer than Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. By grace, you're saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's not about works. It's a gift of God. Not something you earn. It's not of the result. It's not a result of works that no one may boast. That's where most people end. And when you were a little kid, that's probably all you learned was Ephesians two eight and nine. But verse ten says, "For and this is the point, we are His workmanship. He made us and saved us for what? Created in Christ Jesus. That's our salvation for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Which, by the way, is just like predestination. He's prepared them beforehand." But I got to choose to get up every morning and do them. But the point is, the point I'm trying to make here is the gospel, faith, I'm going to get saved. I'm going to produce good works. You don't produce good works. You must not have salvation that's based on real gospel and real faith. Because real gospel, real faith equals salvation plus good works. You got to have that. And I know that my parents' generation raised me in a church, unfortunately, that was so afraid of the cults and the JWs and the Mormons and all the rest that they did not want to talk about works. That's why we only memorized when I was a kid, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And we all grew up thinking, oh, great. I guess our faith doesn't have to produce any works. That's good because I don't want to, which proved I didn't have real biblical faith. Another favorite thing, the infinitude. I look, search for a better word than that, but it's getting late in the afternoon. The infinitude of God's attributes. I just love the way this is put, and this ought to encourage you to be a student of the Bible. If you ever wake up going, I read the DBR, I've read all this stuff before, don't let yourself say that. The infinitude of every single of God's attributes is amazing. Look at this. Something so simple as God's love, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, this is his prayer and his hope, you may have strength to comprehend. So wipe the sleep from your eyes, because whatever you're going to read in the Bible today, there's a lot to comprehend. And I want you to comprehend it with every last person in your church, not just the wannabe ministers. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And to know the love of just the second person of the Godhead of Christ. That which, by the way, if you try to understand it in its fullness, in its breadth and length and height and depth, it would surpass knowledge. You could spend the rest of your life on one attribute, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I want to be filled with the fullness of God. I'd like to have all of that. I'd like to really have God. I'd like to know everything I can know. And that's why Christianity is an infinite study. And if you haven't been exposed to much but the best-selling Christian book list, you don't know how deep you can go in just about every single aspect of Christianity. Go visit a good library somewhere a good Christian library. And see, it's just infinite. I just love that. It always encourages me because there are days I say like you, oh, I've heard this story. I know this stuff. You can't think that way. You have to know there's so much more I could do to plumb the depths of any particular doctrine of God, the infinitude of God's attributes. I love this too, speaking of words that I wouldn't normally use, the deputizing 
of the highly committed participants, to use some local language here. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He gave the apostles, speaking of the gifts to the church now. He gave the apostles, and he gave the prophets, he gave the evangelists, and he gave the shepherds and teachers. We talked about that little quadrants of founding churches, sustaining those churches without a New Testament, founding churches, church planters, evangelists, sustaining those churches with a Bible in your hand. There's the foundation of it all. For what? What's the purpose? To equip the saints. The shepherds and teachers now are equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. To deputize the people in the church. And again, we don't have this problem. There's a lot of unique things about doing church in Southern California and you coming and not, this isn't cultural. You're not coming here to meet people so you can sell insurance and because you're a Baptist and you just do that. And, you know, I've always been in the church and everyone goes to church. I hope you don't see it the way some people see it. And that is they see it as you find a guy who went to seminary so we can hire him to do ministry. That's not the point. Do I do ministry? Do ministry. People are hurting. Do I help them? I help them. Someone needs a visit, I visit them. Someone in the hospital, I'll go. That's true. That is what I do, but I only do it as a player coach. That's, I'm a coach. My job is to get you to do that. Someone's sick in your small group, you ought to be ministering them. Someone needs to be saved, you ought to be evangelizing them. Someone who needs counseling, you ought to counsel them. That's your job. My job is to prepare you to do that. Am I going to do it too? I do it too. I do it too. But you don't hire me to do that. You don't hire our pastors to do that. You hire pastors to teach you how to shoot the ball. That's the job. Can they get out there and slam dunk? I hope so. That, that's, I mean, we hire really good coaches. That's the job. They should be good at playing the game but they're coaching you to do the work. There's a deputizing of the people in the pews, and that's not understood across this country. And unfortunately, too many people think their job is to hire guys to do all the work that needs to be done in the church. We're doing work, by the way. Don't think we're not working. But our work and our primary work is to prepare you to do the work the saints, which are not canonized people in the Catholic church. Obviously, we're talking about people that sit there as regenerate people in church. Pictures of regeneration. Ephesians chapter 4, verses, verse 28 for one. I'll give you a couple of them. These are just so good. And I quoted this earlier. Let the thief steal no longer. Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so they may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, follow this. Think about this. The thief is going and using his efforts to get stuff that he did not buy or did not earn and, and did not buy. He's working at getting stuff for himself. Regeneration isn't saying to a thief, stop stealing. That's not, that's, that's not right. I mean, that's true, but that's just the beginning. Look at that passage. Now, stop stealing, and what I'd like you to do is get out there and start doing honest work so that you can do the exact opposite of stealing. You can now give to other people. You, you catch your kids stealing, don't just slap his hand and discipline him and say to stop stealing. You now force your child. Or you find yourself saying, you do force yourself to do the very exact opposite of that. You drive now to say, I'm going to work in the completely opposite direction to where I'm going to be known as the one who gives stuff away because I'm working so hard with my hands. That's regeneration. I'm just stopping the bad habits. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. Look at this. Let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, or coarse joking. They're out of place. So it's not only, listen, oh, you cuss, you've got crude language, tell dirty jokes. Stop. That's what the Christian thing. No, that's true, but that's half of it. Look at this. But rather, there ought to be thanksgiving. The goal is not for you just to curtail those things. Regeneration replaces all of that. It drives those things in your life that are used wrong. It drives them in the opposite direction. That's a picture of regeneration. Regeneration is the new birth, born again, to be different from the inside out. And I just think we don't think as two-dimensionally, three-dimensionally about this as we should. We just think, oh, if I'm a Christian, I'll stop doing that thing. 
If it's sin, I won't do it. I'll try to work hard not to do it. You take all that energy and you move it in the other direction because God has brought us from seeking the wrong things to pursuing with an equal passion, if not more passion, the right thing. Number six, the mystery of marriage. I say this because even in this passage, it's the most preached section of scripture about marriage. It's not about marriage. Oh, it's about marriage, but it's not about The whole purpose isn't about marriage. He says, this mystery I've been talking about in marriage is profound. And I'm saying, though, here it is, that it refers to Christ and the church. Oh, however, I guess there's a lesson to be learned here, too. Let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. How many preachers have preached the passage and really gotten to the point, and I know there are some, that really this is about Christ and the church? Because it's so helpful and practical and we all need better marriages, so we always preach it about our marriage. Yeah, that's true, and that's the overflow of it. But God did not sit here and say, let's talk about my relationship with my people so I can help you have a good marriage. It's God crafting marriage so that you might understand Christ in the church. There's, a many, there's many ways for us to, to make families or to create human beings or have God pop them out of the sand if you step on the sand three times or whatever. There's plenty of ways for God to take care of that. He said, no, I'm going to do something that's going to create this thing called marriage, a foundation for procreation, creating families. I'm going to do all of that. Why? Because it's an illustration. The mystery of marriage is really about Christ and the church. There's just something there that is so big, so much bigger than going to church to learn some principles about marriage or reading Ephesians 5 and learning about marriage. Marriage is an incredible mystery and it's there not just for fun or by necessity. It's there because God's trying to teach us something about himself. Anyway, he calls it a mystery. Detecting the spiritual battle. I was just preaching on this this last week in another state, but we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That can be abused or it can be ignored. You've got to do something between those two. You can't ignore it. And that's what a lot of us do because we're not Pentecostals casting demons out of the, the, you know, the dishwasher or whatever. You are a Christian that is battling with your boss, your health, with a lot of other things, with spiritual forces. We're not Pentecostals. I understand that. I get that. But there's a battle going on. And if you don't look beyond the present circumstances to ask yourself, what is the battle? What is the spiritual battle involved in this? Then you're just foolish. You're just dumb. I mean, that's just the stupid thing to do as a Christian. Everything you face has some spiritual dimension to it. And there's a battle going on. And you just got to see that. And I think we have to detect that more often. It doesn't resort to the foolish commanding and claiming and all the rest that people lead you to if you recognize the battle. But Christians need to recognize the battle and then put on the armor of God, which is what this passage is all about, which are very practical disciplines in the Christian life. Colossians. Can we possibly get through Colossians? Length 4, 95, 1582. Four chapters, 95 verses, 1582 words in the Greek New Testament. 495-1582. Next slide. Author, Paul, Colossians 1.1. 1, 1. He includes an associate. Again, Timothy shows up. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy, a real beloved disciple, the apostle Paul. This is the second of four prison epistles from Rome. Let's put it somewhere in that second year of his imprisonment, 61 AD. Enough said. Recipients. This one's not hard like the Ephesians. I can ask the question now, who do you think the Colossian letter is written to? You'd say the Christians of Colossae. That's, there's no debate there. There's no manuscript confusion. There's nothing. Nothing from the church fathers. Everyone agrees. Everything's clear. It's to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. It's about 100 miles from Ephesus. Church was not founded by the Apostle Paul. As far as we know, Paul never visited Colossae. There may have been people that he saved that were there, and there clearly are, as we'll learn in Philemon, but we don't know that he actually went there. I don't know if it was on the other map. I don't think it was, and I think that's why I put this other map on here. But you go inland from Ephesus, 
almost due east, then you'll hit Colossae in modern-day Greece. Yeah, if you do go to Colossae, you can see some of the old paved, the cardo, as they call it, the main street. They reconstruct these things out of materials that they find and uncover. Purpose of the book is to safeguard against false teaching. There is a very specific threat there. I shouldn't say very specific. There's a threat there that's specified. It's, it's identified, I should say, hard to specify. Colossians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Although I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Even that's the kind of statement you don't find in Ephesians. You certainly find it in Colossians, though. There is something called the Colossian heresy. If you look carefully in chapter 2, you'll see components of it. I would simply put it this way, though a lot of people have a lot of things to say about what, what exactly was the Colossian heresy. All you can do is look at the things that he's saying that you need to do and that you shouldn't do and try and piece together. What does that look like? It's a mix of theological and philosophical distractions. It may not be one thing. It may not be one group. It may be five groups. It may be three groups. It's certainly, I think, at least two groups that have different things to say that relate to either the Greco-Roman philosophies of the day or the ancient or the Old Testament Judaizers certainly had something to say too about days and angels, holy days. Some would say this is a pre-Gnostic heresy. Gnosticism saw spirit as good and material as bad, which led to all kinds of things. The early forms of it was to say if material things and physical things are bad, then we should work hard to subdue those in the most the most severe forms possible. We should deny ourselves anything good. The Bible doesn't say that. You know, we shouldn't we, we should whip ourselves and cause great pain to ourselves. That's asceticism, which even is translated in this book as one of the things that's the problem in the church. Of course, this is too early for Gnosticism, and it's not clearly stated, really even defining the elements of Gnosticism. If you go on Focal Point and you search for Gnostic, I preached a couple messages on Gnosticism that may be helpful for you. And there's great books on the reading list from those sermons, too, that you can read a lot more about. Simplified Outline, again, it's just ridiculously simple here, but the first three chapters are all about doctrinal clarification, the second half, the right practice for Christians in the home, in the workplace, in the community, in evangelism. The first half, a lot of it is a kind of a defensive, don't let this happen, you need to do this, but all dealing with doctrinal matters, Christology, the deity of Christ. Simple, two points. Favorite things about Colossians. I love Paul's hopeful prayer list. Look at the way he puts this. He prays much more optimistically than I do. It's always convicting to read his prayers in Colossians 1. He says, from the day we heard of it, we haven't ceased to pray for you. That's convicting in itself. Asking him to be filled with the knowledge of his will, God's will that is, obviously, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament that speaks of a kind of optimistic pastoral concern for people. And if you have a friend that you love that's a Christian, this ought to be the kind of optimistic, prayerful hope that you have for them. I think I preached on this a couple of times in this church about making a good outline of praying bullet points for your friends and the people that you love that are Christians. But the whole passage is obviously fantastic, but this is, this is great. I pray through a lot of people in the church and groups in the church, and sadly, my prayer list doesn't sound as optimistic as I articulate my prayers as a great passage like that. I'm challenged, and I hope you are too. His willingness to suffer for the church. Preached this recently somewhere. I don't remember where. Colossians 1.24. Remind pastors that, or any ministers, or anybody ministering in any way, that we ought to rejoice in our sufferings for the people's sake that we're serving. In this case, the Colossians' sake. 
And in my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. We want to serve the people of God, and I'm willing to suffer to see that happen. And we fill up the sufferings of Christ, not in any kind of redemptive way. He suffered all that we needed to suffer, anyone needed to suffer for our redemption, but he didn't suffer all that needed to be suffered for the building of the church. And I mean that literally. He didn't have to suffer through the 21st century as a pastor in dealing with the people in this church. He's letting us deal with that. He's letting us suffer through that. And we fill that up until we're done with the work. He goes on in the next chapter and says, I want you to know how great a struggle I've had for you and for those at Laodicea. There again is another reference to Laodicea in this book. And for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged. I struggle, agonizomai. I agonizing to see you guys encouraged. That's a great way to think about ministry, isn't it? Clarity regarding the ceremonies. We've dealt with this already. We'll deal with it more later in Hebrews. But let no one pass judgment on you in questions the food, drink, regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I don't see how anyone can tell you got to eat this way according to Levitical law or worship on these days or not do this on this day because of something they read in Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy when these passages speak so clearly about those ceremonies serving a particular purpose. As I've often said, it's like wearing a tuxedo. Yes, I wore a tuxedo, really was required to wear a tuxedo at my wedding. I don't wear it every day to be married. And there's no expectation in that regard. And so those ceremonies led us to Christ. But now that we have Christ, you can hang up the tuxedo. Give it back, actually. I hope it's a rental. Yes, give it away. Eternal perspective, Colossians 3. There was a season of my life I quoted this all the time in my own head. You've been raised up with Christ. Have you, Mike? Have you really? Well, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. That wouldn't be a bad thing to recalibrate your mind. So that you go to work every day. You deal with people every day. And you're not just thinking about earthly things as it relates to that work, that job, and those people. You're thinking as a person that's been raised up with Christ. I am a child of God, and God has agenda that goes beyond what everyone else in my office is concerned about. Hopefully not in my office, but maybe in your office. I want everyone in my office to think this way. Aggressive sanctification, again, much like Romans. Look at these words. Put to death, therefore, whatever sort of thing. That's not going to preach very well in a lot of pulpits across the country these days. Part of your life needs to be put to death. Put it to death. Wow. Whatever is earthly in you, what kinds of things? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. That sermon right there needs to be preached all the time to all of us in every generation and every place. And I'm just saying when it's completely absent, which I think it is today because people don't want to say anything going to make anybody feel bad from the pulpit. We've missed the aggressive nature of what it is to grow in Christ. We've got to have a sermon sting every now and then. Well, you're sting every week. Well, sometimes I, I get you one day a week, you realize. Most people at least. Maybe you twice a week, but sermons got to sting. That's all I got time for. We'll get Philemon next week. And I hate breaking up Colossians and Philemon because they go together. And so remember next week, we get together, Lord willing, and we'll, we'll study again. Philemon is like part two to Colossians. And we've got to keep those in our minds linked together. All right. Four out of six ain't bad. We got five out of six last week, I think, or whatever it was. And with two computers, I made it through the night. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for all that we have in it. I pray we can all go home and list our favorite things from these passages, not because they appeal to our flesh or not because they don't sting or not because they're just my favorite parts of your word, but because they are things that challenge us, that push us, things that affirm us, things that drive us back to you, things that help us understand you better, things that shift us out of our lethargy into a passionate concern and love for your truth and for you that move us into productive and fruitful ministry that keep our optimism in place when we're discouraged. All those things in scripture, let them become favorite things to us. And if it's not the list that we dealt with tonight, just let our church be good students of the word that learn to love every single book of the New Testament in a way that would some be quick for them just to say, this is what I love about this book. This is how it helps me grow. It's how it helps me become a better Christian. God, do that as we continue to, to study and to read and to meditate and memorize your word in Jesus name. Amen.